That was sound from the closing ceremony of the 2015 European Games, which took place on June 28th in the Azerbaijan capital of Baku. You're listening to the latest Sunday edition of ATR Radio. I'm Nicole Bennett. Patrick Hickey, president of the European Olympic Committee, spoke with Around the Rings editor Ed Hula just hours before the closing ceremony of the first European Games in Baku. Hickey said the experience at the European Games convinces him that the Azerbaijan capital city has what it takes to launch a competitive bid for the Olympics again. Baku has bid twice before. And he discussed the bid process underway to find a host for the 2019 edition of the European Games. It's a search Hickey and his colleagues at the EOC had hoped would be finished before Baku 2015. Hickey had the highest praise for Baku, which was handed the job of hosting the Games just 30 months ago. He said the attitude and spirit of the people of Baku and Azerbaijan had an Olympic feel to it. Here's an excerpt from that interview. That Olympic spirit crept into the city and the country, and uh, you could feel the joy and happiness around Baku, and I believe that extended into the the rest of the country as well. And um, there's no doubt they have Olympic ambitions. That's why they have such beautiful stadia. And with Agenda 2020, they'll be able to negotiate with the IOC as, as the other cities are, have done who are going to bid for 2024. I'm not saying they're bidding for 2024. I don't know which they'll go for. That's the decision that they will make. But do you think they're capable at some point in the future of doing it? 100% capable. Not today? Uh, to run the, well, no, they, if they bid for 2024, they will be capable for 2024. And... Uh, I had an experience there at the opening ceremony. I think there was 60 IOC members present, and they were astounded at what they saw. And they had never been exposed, to most of them, to Baku before. So they created a goodwill, and the way they have done everything. But we all know bidding and winning is two completely different things. What is this experience in Baku going to do to your efforts to secure 2019? for the European Games? Well, it's helped it greatly. Um, when the Netherlands uh, fell by the wayside, we then went back to the original cities that we had dealt with, and we had purposely told them we would not have a bidding process and that they would not have to expend money, etc. And two of them had already committed for 2023. And we then went back to those two to bring them forward to 2019, and then we also reconnected with the others. But to ask, answer your question, since the game started here 17 days ago, and since it's up and running two cities now, I've met already here the representatives who are interested in looking for 2019. The financial model for these games here in Baku required a great deal of support from the government. Is that what's going to be expected? from subsequent hosts? No, because the financial model of the Netherlands, if it had gone forward, was a completely different model. It was a cheap and cheerful games. And we've always said that one city is a completely different entity to the next, and we will tailor-make the games for that particular city. Like, for example, we did that with sports. We had karate here, which is a very strong sport locally. We had sambo which is very strong locally. And uh, the next city might have a different agenda of sports on the program. So we will fit it in with what is good for them. 
now that you've had these games, what kind of impact do you think they will have on European sport, Olympic sports in, in Oh, Europe? I think it's a great impact. I've seen it already. Um, uh, I was attending here the uh, press conference for judo, and they had a Hungarian at female athlete uh, on the podium, and she was world champion. And she'd never been to an Olympics yet. And she was asked, what did she like about this Games? And she said, I cannot believe living in an Olympic village with my other Hungarian sportsmen and women. I've never done anything like this before. It's fantastic. Second thing is that uh, so many countries have won medals here. And uh, remarkable things have happened. Badminton, for example, is a sport dominated by Asia. And my own country, Ireland, won two bronze medals here. Now, what that does for badminton in my own country and in Europe, and there's been many examples of that with other NOCs as well, and there's a feel-good factor, uh, everybody living together. Most, they all have European championships, but you never meet anyone outside your own sport. And uh, every chef de mission I met, every president, secretary general, they love the atmosphere and they love the whole operation. Azerbaijan Minister for Youth and Sport Azad Rahimov has led the push for his country to play a greater role in international sport for 10 years, his biggest catch so far, the inaugural European Games. In an interview with Around the Rings editor Ed Hula, Rahimov said plenty of credit goes to the team of experts from across Europe who have come to Baku in the past two and a half years to work on the Games. He echoed Hickey's sentiments, saying the experience will be evaluated quickly by the government to decide whether to go ahead with a bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics. Rahimov said the European Games is a boost for Azerbaijani sports executives to help lead big events in the future of the country, one of the benefits of playing host. Here's more from Ed's interview with Azad Rahimov. I think that's a lot of benefits from the Games. It's again the culture of the volunteer I mentioned several times. Now we have the huge, more than 15,000, 16,000 team of the volunteers now proud to be the part of that huge event. Of course, it's uh, important, it's our fans coming and supporting our team. It's very important, the new sport where we are uh, win the, won the medals or uh, participated in a very high level. That's a lot of interesting challenges. Foreign nationals took a leading role in putting together the administration of these games. Simon Clegg other people involved with the organization have experience with, 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 with other games. Could you have done this without their help? I think no. Uh, even, uh, let's say, the very small circle of the people, uh, the f sport bureaucrats like I am, or the members, some of the, my ministry employees or the Olympic Committee, they never delivered such a huge event. And if he, personally me or somebody else, uh, just uh, knew some theory about that, but the practically it's a totally different. And of course I think that the uh, help of our uh, chiefs, directors in the Begok Baku European Games uh, Operation Committee it was really very huge, and the structure they created, the team they built, and the knowledge they shared, it's very important for us. Without this help, uh, we really need uh, needed more and more time, because we have to uh, 
discover, to study, and to get. But uh, the people bring their knowledges and experience to us, and that's why these two, two years, really, I can say two, it's not two and a half, it's two years delivery uh, became possible. What about making Baku, Azerbaijan, more attractive to visitors? Is there anything you think needs to be done? Well, to say that the games is also a possibility to attract the people. Uh, we we believe that we will increase uh, the uh, we increase the uh, quantity of the tourists coming with that games with that promotion. But of course, parallelly or be be bit uh, ahead, it will be the construction of the new hotels and accommodation. We discussed a lot of different solutions. Let's say to bring uh, big ships like. Uh, Pullman ships to put in the Baku Bay. Unfortunately, these ships are not passing under the bridge from the Volga Don River. <laughs> That's not possible. Now we're considering, in case of the hosting Olympic Games or some other big events, to come to the temporary hotels, which is now existing in the world. Fast building, temporary, and of course, uh, ten times cheaper than to build the big uh, network hotels with the names and the uh, uh, a lot of uh, beautiful, let's say, uh, things inside cost a lot. Yeah. You clearly need to address that issue if you're going to bid for an Olympic Games in the future. What, uh, what else is your government, is Azerbaijan going to consider as far as a possible Olympic bid goes? What, what, what will be the factors that you use? Um, to, to make this determination? Of course, uh, it's uh, difficult to say uh, who will be our competitors at the moment because uh, the cities not still announced the final decision about the participation. We have to see uh, who will be our competitors in that road, in that way. The second, it's important to make the analysis and to see where we were for the European Games, where it was the, our sick places and how we achieve high level. Uh, of course, a very important part is legacy and investment. I think it's a number one because to invest uh, now huge uh, finance to the building some facilities uh, for, the, for the Olympic Games, which is not existing at the moment. There are too many sports, too many... Uh, the demands and requirements. And after that, to see this, all these sport halls empty and think how to cover their expenses is the biggest question in front of the government. And that's, uh, of course, uh, the government has to find the, the right solution before they announce the bid. In other news, members of the second IOC Coordination Commission for the 2020 Summer Olympics met in Tokyo this week. Alice Wheeler, ATR correspondent, joined us from Tokyo via Skype toward the end of the commission's visit. She said that venue construction headlined the agenda for the 15-member commission chaired by John Coates in Tokyo this week. Here's more from Alice Wheeler in Tokyo. 
The biggest item on the Coordination Commission's agenda was the review into venues. Uh, it's less than a month to go now until the Tokyo 2020 has to present their venue master plan to the IOC Executive Board, which will happen at the IOC session in Kuala Lumpur at the end of July. So the organising committee has confirmed 26 sports already and it just remains to confirm football and cycling. Football can't happen until after the Rio Olympics, um, so cycling is where the real issue lies. Um, the issue is in the Izu Peninsula where they're looking at a venue and doesn't necessarily agree with what the UCI wants. Uh, the Coordination Commission also visited the Makuhari Messi, which was confirmed recently as a new venue for wrestling, taekwondo and fencing, which was to replace the former venue, which was going to be in the Tokyo big site, which there's not room for now. So venues has definitely been on the agenda. The Commission has been out to see the sea forest venues, which is for rowing and canoe kayak, um, which they took a boat trip to. So it's been all about venues. And so I guess aside from that, and like you said, venues was a hot topic this week, what in your opinion is Tokyo 2020's biggest challenge ahead? Well, the biggest challenge in the short term is definitely resolving the issue of the biggest venue, which is the National Stadium. This has overshadowed any good news that's come out of Tokyo in recent months has been overshadowed by the, the ongoing issue of the National Stadium, the design of it, the cost of it, who is going to pay for it. Um, there's been some movement on that this week. The design has been locked down and a construction date has been set for October this year. Uh, it still remains unclear, however, who is going to foot the bill, which is $2 billion US dollars, which is more than double than what it was originally planned to be in the bid. They're saying that the reason this stadium is so expensive, one of the reasons is that the construction costs have become so expensive as a result of the Fukushima um, nuclear disaster because all the construction work is taking place in that area. That's definitely their, their problem in the short term is resolving the, the public angst and the, the issues between the different political parties, which is causing issues over, over that national stadium. As far as long-term issues, to be honest, there's not many. The, um, the IOC have very little to say about any problems that the, the organising committee has. They say that they're far ahead from where they you know, could be at this point and that they, they don't see any issues. And they said they'll be monitoring them closely, of course, but at this stage they're, they're well ahead of the game and they're taking all the IOC's recommendations on board and, and fixing them quickly. So... At the moment, it's, it's unclear. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Lastly, in an interview with Around the Rings on July 2nd, Olympic swimmer Max Metzger reflected on what he says is the Olympics no one wants to talk about. For Metzger, the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games brings to mind one of the worst disputes in the history of Australian sport. The 55-year-old Olympian says that even though three decades have passed, he can still feel the pain brought on by his participation in the Moscow Games. At the time, the United States had called for a boycott of Moscow in retaliation for the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Australia's Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Fraser, supported his allies in the States, and the row split the country and split the Australian Olympic Federation, later to become the Australian Olympic Committee. Following a vote, a handful of athletes withdrew from Australia's delegation in the lead-up to the Olympics. In the end, Australia sent a team of 124 athletes. Metzger carried the flag in the opening ceremony alongside Olympic sprinter Denise Robertson-Boyd. Metzger took home a bronze medal in the 1,500-meter freestyle. Despite the adversity the Australian team faced in the lead-up to the Games, Metzger says he's proud of what they ultimately accomplished in Moscow. Here's an excerpt from Metzger's interview with ATR. 
the atmosphere in Australia was, uh, well, it was divided. I think the majority of the people wanted us to go, but the government was putting pressure on the um, Australian Olympic Committee to vote no. The, the public was getting quite um, vile, like, I know myself and a lot of other swimmers, we received uh, you know, threatening you know, um, comments in the mail, you know, vile stuff. <laughs> My mother even, because I was living at home then when I was young, she'd even vet our mail to make sure I couldn't see all these um, you know, quite uh, horrible things you know, written down. And also um, parents, uh, one swimmer, Mark Tonelli, his parents in Brisbane at a mall were um, you know, spat on and you know, their son was called a traitor. And... Half of the press here was in favour of the government and they were writing headlines in the paper, traitors and, you know, uh, publishing uh, nasty uh, cartoons, you know, with Olympians and medals, you know, like we were selling out. And it was very tense and that's why the swimming team, we left Australia quite early to get overseas, to go to France, to get a training camp, to get away from all of the pressure over here. So when you arrived in Moscow, what was the atmosphere like at the Athletes' Village? Did any of that tension from home spill over into your experience at the Games? No, funnily enough, all the countries that did go, yeah, like the big hitters, yeah, Great Britain and uh, all the the big nations and and France, there wasn't exactly a bonding together, but all the countries knew that we were there for the right reasons, not to to promote the Soviet Union, but to show our country's flags, to say, hey, listen, you guys are doing the wrong thing. Look, you know, we've come over here, we're going to compete in your games and still keep that you know, communication open. The security over in, in Moscow was was tight, yeah, for our own safety, and um, but it certainly it was still wasn't a bad atmosphere over there. It was still very enjoyable. So I guess just uh, on on a last note, what would you say is your biggest takeaway from having competed at the 1980 Olympics? Well, I believe um, every nation that went was right going there. I don't believe we contributed to the, the, their propaganda machine. Um, you know, like 35 years ago, as I said before, that was you know, still the powder gig, that part of the world, and you know, and it still is. So the politicians haven't succeeded in um, solving it. So we still have a chance as athletes uh, you know, to solve it, but without being used as pawns, without being used as political pawns. We do it our way you know, with sport and competition. I heard someone say one time, it was about 1980, it was just this analogy, they said there was, in the world there's no common eye colour, there's no common skin colour, there's no common hair colour, there's no common culture. The only thing mankind has in common is sport. It's the only thing. And that's the only thing that can stop this powder keg blowing up is sport can hold us together if we do it in the correct way. Sport and the love of competition. Stay tuned this week for an edition of ATR Radio with Andre Krukov, chairman of Almaty's bid for the 2022 Winter Olympics. And as always, be sure to check into Around the Rings online on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Nicole Bennett, sending you off with sound from the closing ceremony of the 1980 Moscow Olympics. Thanks for listening. Oh, it's a tea.
твой сказочный лес, Пожелаем друг другу успеха, Мы добра и любви без конца.